You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Okay, there we go. How are you doing? Nine o'clock. Really excited to see if um, any of the regulars come along because you know Sports Therapy Association podcast is recorded live. Um, and I've had this kind of fear for the last hour that people are just can't break that kind of like routine it's eight o'clock but this week um it is nine o'clock so i'm just watching the com catherine's here fine we can start hey catherine how are you doing so yes if it's the first time you've heard the sports therapy association podcast it is recorded live because that's what it's all about really i mean we appreciate people listening to the podcast it's fantastic and obviously you might not be able to join us because you're in a different part of the world but we really like if you can people joining us live because we can do things like that we can bring your name up on the screen and say hi catherine how you doing um i've enjoyed following your post this week catherine some lovely stuff going up clinic's looking lovely by the way congratulations um catherine says it's past my bedtime we're going to get a lot of this aren't we us therapists there's no it's all school days every day um emma's here room is oh thanks guys thanks for hanging around an hour i appreciate it's totally ruined your plans for tv and everything sarah's here brian's here beautiful if you are listening to the podcast then i'm joking that's really nice as well and thank you but you could show your thanks by going to apple podcast and leaving a little rating or review that'd be great as well um if you can do that then fantastic if you're using android then i i, I like that um but you'll have to go to itunes um and it's a little bit more of a hassle but anyway there we go right so um before i get carried away then i must give a massive thanks to last week's guest um it was a pelvic health special with gerard green um lovely feedback from you guys isn't he fantastic it was it was it was i was just sitting here listening he's such a great educator um and talking about it's lovely when he can talk about the things in pelvic health in such a relaxed open way and it's something we need to do obviously and as massage therapists it's a responsibility for us i think a nice responsibility to ask the right questions to make people realize that they've come to us for help and you know what we can refer you out we see if you've asked a few of these symptoms you've got this going on or then we can help you even though we're not going to put some hands on you we can actually send you to the right person to have a chat so thank you gerard um for a fantastic week um last week um and if you haven't heard it then it's on youtube if you like the video it's on podcast on all favorite apps um and yeah catch up with it leave some comments and leave us a rating as you can see for the rest of May, we've got the fantastic Dr. Rachel Swiftness. Sorry, I must have remembered to say sorry for not putting a doctor in there as well. I don't know how I left that out. Must have been in a rush. But yeah, Dr. Rachel Zoffness um, is going to be talking to us in a pain management special. Really excited about that. Lots of posts during the week. Um, and I'm really pleased as well because it was somebody who you guys actually asked for, which is great. I mean, that's what this is all about. It's about you telling me, oh, why can you get so-and-so? And we have. So Rachel here is going to be here talking um, about pain management. And then next week, we've got David um, Balins from Balins Insurance as well to end a wonderful May. Hasn't it been a wonderful May? And then we do it again in June with a whole bunch of new characters and guests. So there we go. So what can I say about tonight's guest? Um, not a lot because my crib sheet isn't up here and I can't, I don't even know who she is. No, I do know. It's, it's Dr. Rachel Zoffness and it's the pain management workbook. That's where her name came up when I think we were talking to maybe was it Mike Stewart? I think Becky, you mentioned um, first of all, um, Rachel. It could have been when we were talking to Bonnie in the, um, I can't remember. But anyway, the name came up a few times and, and she's here. I'm so happy. And she's in San Francisco. This is why the time had to change a little bit. Um, oh, and Anna Maria is here as well. We are blessed. The queen of Massage Collective has joined us as well. How exciting. 
So um, if you do have questions, obviously put them in here. That's the joy of coming live. I'm obviously got a load of questions to ask um, Rachel, but if you've got anything, I've given her strict instructions to tell me to shut up if she sees something far more interesting in the comments. Um, so yeah, bring it on people. I and mean, I hope you enjoy the show. So without further ado, let's bring up Rachel, Dr. Rachel Zoffness. Hey there, how are you doing? I really love that you briefly <laughs> forgot who I was. I've had no idea what I was doing here. No, I was faking that. Deeply impressive. No, I was faking it. Look, I'll show you. I'll give you. Look, look. Basically, I've got this. Is look. I've got my crib sheet. Restarting Windows. Restarting. So just giving you a tough time. We talked about drinking bourbon. We definitely should have started with bourbon. Um. Yeah. It would be nice. No, it's fine. I know. I know lots about you. I've listened to lots about you, and um, with um with uh, Brody recently that was great on the run smarter podcast and also going back to Dr. Um, what's his name? Um, Z dog. That was great. I really enjoyed that. Who I hadn't really caught. Yeah. yeah. What a great guy. Yeah. I've never heard about the whole immunized video and I didn't realize he was such a hit. I don't really watch YouTube videos much, but what a great way of getting points across really good video. Yeah. He's a disruptor in medicine. I think he's really interesting, sort of like you. Yeah, it's just, you know, changing the way we're doing things. We're we're treating pain. We're mismanaging pain. We've been doing that for decades. And there are some people who are willing to stand up against the system and say, we're doing this wrong. We've been doing it wrong for a long time, and it's time to make change. So thank you so much for having me on. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. I'm really happy. And um, I hear you still getting death threats for it, but that's the price. Do you get many death threats then? Are you a disruptor as well or haven't reached that? Yeah. I like to think I'm a disruptor, but I try and be very careful. Um, on the Z-Dog podcast in particular, he said to me that that was a thing. Every time he talked about opioids and expressed opinions about that, he would get death threats. So we had a conversation about it ahead of time, and he just sort of right. gave me a, a heads up. So It's crazy. It shows how strong yeah. beliefs can be. I think social media has got a lot to do with that. It really is so polarized, the debates out there. But, but anyway, we'll leave a link to that for you people to have a listen to. It's a, it's a really great podcast and a real interesting character to get through. But anyway, tonight is about you. Um, I'm making a thing about the doctor because I read your tweet and I think it's worth highlighting this. Um, I follow you on Twitter and I, I saw that thing about the, um, the manual with the, the oh, yeah. not mentioning the actual association, but it's just another plain example of like what 70% industry of female pediatricians, pediatrics. Staff, pediatrics. And here is 10 guys who are going to talk about it to you. And wasn't that just like, <laughs> so I thought, medicine is just like, medicine is like limping along behind so many disciplines. And I say that as someone who's a medical professional, it's just sometimes it's hard to watch. I think for all of us to be in this field and, you know, for those of us who are curious and we, read a lot and we consume a lot of information and we can see that what's being done in medicine is so ass backwards. You said I can, you know, say yeah, certain words. I can say whatever you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Watershed <laughs> but, is over. It's just so frustrating. You know, you, you, you watch like, you know, in a field that's disciplined at 70% women, pediatrics to have a, a, um, a panel of all men, which, you know, we now call a mantle is just wild. And similarly with pain medicine, to listen to a lot of these organizations talk about treating pain from a purely biomedical perspective with pills and procedures, even though we know that that's not how you treat pain is just wild. It's really wild. It's, um, yeah, well, we're going through the similar things here with the massage um, kind of industry, which is where most of the people listening are from. And the Sports Therapy Association is one of many associations which you don't have to belong to because there's no regulation for basically massage industry 
in the UK, um, not like there is for physiotherapy or chiropractic or osteopath. So basically anyone can open up a school and put on a level five, level six, level seven, level eight exam and put whatever they want into it to a certain degree. And that's some people say we need regulation. Some people say that's only good if the people doing the regulating are on top of it. And so that maybe it's not such a good idea, but it's quite topical at the moment because, yeah, we all know about, well, everyone in here kind of knows that we're a little bit backward as well. And it does take a while, doesn't it, for research to get through. And we accept that and we hope it trickles through. It takes about, what was it, Anne-Marie? You're always quoting this about 17 years or something for a research paper to actually get to the clinic door, which I think should be changed with with internet now. I think when that statistic came out, that was pre-internet. I think with social media now, we should be able to speed that up a little bit. Um, so I'm sure we'll mention that a little bit tonight. But for people who aren't aware of you, um, oh, I hate saying this. Tell us a little bit about yourself because you've got such a long, long career. Let's start off with actually, let's start off with a book, which was December. Yeah, yeah, good memory. Yeah, December. So what was the lead up to that? Because you had another book before that, okay, which I right. think was the year before, which was specifically yeah. for the younger population. Maybe start yeah. with that book. What led up to you writing that book? Tell us about that book and what led up to writing it. And then how come right. a year later you put a new one? So um, I'm a pain psychologist. Most people have never heard of that. And most people don't know what that is. And that's in part because in Western medicine, we have this massive and awful fallacy, which is either you have physical pain and you see a physician or a massage therapist or a PT, or you have emotional pain and you see a psychologist. So most psychologists are not trained in pain. And, you know, we have this disconnect, of course. So a lot of physicians, by the way, aren't trained in pain also. Most healthcare providers we've learned are not trained in pain. Um, so for me, when I went down this rabbit hole of treating pain, what I really wanted to do was bridge this gap between what we call emotional pain and what we call physical pain. And of course, for those of us who are pain nerds, we know that the way pain works is that all the sensory all of the sensory signals from the body filter through the brain's limbic system before it becomes this thing we call pain. So pain is always physical and emotional because your limbic system is your brain's emotion center. So what I really wanted to do was bridge this gap between our understanding of pain being either emotional or physical and change the conversation about pain to being something that's both emotional and physical 100% of the time. Um, I'm also a real nerd and disseminator of knowledge and exactly what you were talking about, which is bringing research into the public forum and allowing people to have access to the most recent literature, the most recent neuroscience, the, everything, the most recent pain science. And, you know, most people have never, ever been... Um, had pain explained to them. So it's the first question I ask my patients, has anyone ever explained pain to you? And everybody says no. And I just, I wanted to change that too. So I dumped everything that I had learned about pain uh, into a workbook for my patients. I work with kids and adults. Um, I was initially most infuriated by the lack of resources for children living with chronic pain. And there's millions of them, millions of children living with chronic pain. Um, and so I, I couldn't find resources for myself and I couldn't find resources for my patients. Um, so there were no workbooks for kids. There's a bunch for adults. There's a bunch for older adults. So um, I wrote a child-friendly workbook. It's the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens. And then my, I couldn't believe, by the way, and I have imposter syndrome. I don't know if anyone else here has imposter syndrome. It's really real. Like, who who do I think I am? Um, well, thanks for that. That's fine. Yeah, you like, keep talking. I'm just letting the people who are listening yeah. a little close up. It is available, by the way, on, on Amazon. I've made a little screenshot of it. In fact, it's reduced. I think you can save a five if you want to get the paperback or if you want the audio, the uh, sorry, the Kindle edition, and that's like 10 pounds or something. So that's your first book, wasn't it, for teens? Yeah. Sorry, Kayla. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And I wanted, I really believe that healthcare should be accessible and affordable. And as you guys know, a lot of non-pharmacological treatments for pain are not reimbursed by insurance. At least at least that's how it is in the States, uh, which boils my blood. There's a lot of families that can't afford a pain psychologist and they can't afford a lot of non-farm approaches. I think that's abhorrent and unacceptable. So I wanted to put resources into a book that anyone could access that they could also afford. So it's like 20 bucks. Um, and I couldn't believe that a publisher wanted to publish it. I published with New Harbinger. They're wonderful. They do a lot of really great books for anxiety and depression and family stuff and some stuff for health and pain too. Um, and then they asked me if I would do an adult workbook. So that one almost didn't happen. Um, because COVID, this thing called COVID happened. And I had all of these deadlines at the beginning of COVID. So I don't know about you folks, but I'll tell you, like for the first few months of COVID, my brain was not functioning properly. I could not focus on work. Like I was paying, like my brain was sort of like, you know, when you ask a computer that's working really hard, you open a new application and the computer, like the fan starts going and like it's breathing really hard and it's really hot. It's like overheating. I honestly felt like that's what my brain was doing at the beginning of COVID. I had all these book deadlines and I would have my manuscript in front of me and I literally could not read it. Like I would go through the pages and get 20 pages in and realize I didn't, hadn't read a word. So the book almost didn't happen. Uh, but somehow they extended my deadlines, gave me a little flexibility. So that came out in December. It's for adults. It's really for anyone of any age. And that's the pain management workbook. Similarly on Amazon, Similarly, my goal was to disseminate pain education, bridge the gap between emotional and physical, and make it affordable um, and easily accessible to people, especially during COVID, because I think people were cut off from their normal coping strategies, and people were cut off from their treatment teams, and opioid overdoses were through the roof. Um, so were suicide rates, by the way. Calls to suicide hotlines were up something like 800%. In some cases, I read somewhere that they were up 8,000%, like in the city of Los Angeles. I mean, it's like really a horrible time of life. So it seemed even more important to get it out into the universe. So luckily that happened. That was a long answer to your short question. No, that's fine. We're all up for long answers. That's fine. That's no problem at all. And so it's great. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, well, I've, I've looked at the second book myself. I haven't looked at the first book, but the second book, and I kind of know the answer to this, but some people think that, for example, if clinicians are watching that these books are self-help books for just the people suffering from chronic pain that or persistent pain, that there'll be something for them. But did you write it in the sense that it could be useful to a therapist or clinician as well to understand, to be able to put their kind of feet in the shoes of somebody who's suffering from persistent pain? Thank you for asking that because I sometimes forget to say that. Um, I think one of my biggest goals, and I think you already know this, one of my biggest goals is to um, help healthcare providers have access to resources that they can then use with their patients. Because each one of us, we have like hundreds of patients filtering through our practices, right? So I actually think it's even more important for practitioners to have good resources. So my my primary goal actually was the practitioners. When I was thinking about this, I was like, how can I create a resource for any physician, any nurse, any PT, any OT, any massage therapist, any anyone who works with patients living with pain, how can I create a resource that's digestible, approachable, and affordable? So yeah, healthcare providers were my number one target audience. Yeah, I think, I mean, like I say, I've read it and so's Becky as well. Becky's saying here for people listening to the podcast, you can't see what's happening on the screen. We've got all sorts of things flying around on the screen. Another reason to join his life. But yeah, Becky says, I can highly recommend the pain management workbook for therapists and clients alike. I did notice when I was reading it, because it's it's so tricky, I think, for therapists to 
help people if they haven't necessarily suffered what that person's suffering. I, I deal with runners a lot. And every time I get runner, which is fortunately touch wood isn't that often, but if I do get an Achilles, Achilles tendinopathy or something or some plantar fasciopathy or something, then it's kind of cool because it reminds me how down I feel, how injury, especially when you've got like an identity and a lot of with running it is it's an identity it's like mourning i think in studies it's been shown the equivalent of death or something it takes away your identity or social connections with everybody so sometimes i think it's good for clinicians to actually experience what their what their clients are but with something as as devastating as as what can be persistent pain can be unless you've been through that it kind of puts you a little bit yeah i've read i've done this so i, I looked at this book and i thought this can really help therapists actually understand a little bit more what's going on behind the person who might be sitting there opposite you smiling going yeah, everything's fine but understanding what is the truth behind it does that make sense yeah and i would say like do you hit this on the head for better or for worse you know a lot of um providers who are treating patients can't relate but with pain pain is a ubiquitous human experience for better or for worse we've all experienced pain and i i think it's safe to say that most adults have had some form of pain that's lasted three months or longer so i think a lot of us can relate but like you said when you're a runner and you have a running injury or you're an athlete you know and you have an injury that stops you from playing the sport you're passionate about maybe it's your livelihood maybe it's your number one hobby maybe it's the way you deal with your emotions and cope with the stress of life when that's taken away from you what happens it's this profound experience that affects all the domains of your life right it's like you said it's not just your ability to run it's your identity it's your your mood it's your stress level it's your ability to cope it's like how you function with your family at home it's like it really it can knock you out for people, again, I'm, I'm always going on about this, and I mention this pretty much every episode, but I'm really conscious that like the people in the room, people like Becky and Brian and people who are commenting here, and definitely Anne-Marie, and we're all kind of already savvy. We say biopsychosocial, and bam, we've got it, and we understand the different elements. But for somebody maybe who's who's listening for the first time, and they might have read it, but they don't really understand it. If anything, they probably fear it because it sounds like a new horror Netflix show or something, biopsychosocial, you walk the streets, <laughs> and it sounds like that. How would you kind of introduce what biopsychosocial means and why it's so important, basically, that therapists get to know what it means? Pain has been misunderstood and mistaught for so many decades. It's ingrained in all of us, patients and providers, that pain is this biomedical experience. Like it's just to do with your body. It means something in your knee is damaged or your back is damaged or your ankle. But what we know about pain, and we've actually known for many decades, is that, like you said, it's this horrifying word, biopsychosocial. And when I first started studying pain, I remember being astounded that no one had ever told me this before. It was so illuminating to understand that pain was not and has never been a purely biomedical process. It's never just about the body. In fact, what we know about pain is that it's constructed by the brain, of course, in concert with the body. And that in order to have this experience we call pain, there's all of these factors from all of these different domains that contribute to the experience and that can amplify pain or decrease pain. So I like to think of it as sort of this lovely Venn diagram. And, you know, we could draw it for everybody, but that's not realistic. But if you imagine there's this bio bubble at the top and then there's a psychological bubble and the social bubble and pain lives in that sweet the sweet spot in the center like I like to call it like the messy middle so the bio domain of pain is the stuff we've all heard about the most right it's like system dysfunction and tissue damage and inflammation and 
even sleep and nutrition and all those things are in our, our bio bubble. But the thing about pain is that two thirds of pain isn't actually biomedical. It's psychosocial, which is like a wild and head explodey sort of fact. Um, the psychological domain of pain, of course, has the most stigma attached to it. And I live in that bubble as a pain psychologist. So I really have to be mindful of how I think about it and talk about it because I'm selling this thing that comes with so much stigma and it's really quite a ride. Um, but in the psychological domain of pain, we have all of these factors that science show are intimately involved in the pain you feel. And that includes your thoughts about your pain because your thoughts aren't just in your head, believe it or not. They also manifest physically in your body. It encompasses your emotional state. So if you, you are anxious or if you are stressed or angry or depressed, and it also encompasses coping behaviors. And, you know, as healthcare providers, we all know that the way you cope with your pain or manage your pain is going to deeply impact the pain you feel. So some people with persistent pain will stay home for many months and many years, stay on the couch, stay in bed, not go outside, not see friends, not engage in movement or activity. And of course, what we know is that pain gets worse with time and that to treat pain, you actually need to gradually do the exact opposite. Right. So that that act, those coping behaviors live in this psychological domain of pain with, with the coping behaviors. If we miss that, we're missing a really big chunk of the pain problem. And then there's the social or the sociological domain of pain, which I am utterly fascinated by. So the social, social or sociological domain of pain is family and social functioning and peer support. But it's also culture and religion and race and ethnicity and um perceptions and environment and context and access to care and socioeconomic status. So I like to call that bubble the everything else bubble, like everything else. And we know that context and environment intimately affects pain also. Like if you've ever been to a children's hospital, it's there's like balloons and murals on the wall and, you know, all these distractions and screens and TVs and movies. And that's not a coincidence. We know that your environment impacts the pain you feel. So just a reminder that pain is never purely biomedical. It's always this thing we call biopsychosocial, which is this complex mix of all these things working together in concert. In concert. And, and just to say, you know, when we're treating pain, we try really hard to never just treat the part of the body that hurts. Like you are not your knee, right? Like you are this big mess of all these things that are happening in your life. So if you're going through a divorce and there's a lot of family conflict or, you know, you don't have good access to care and you don't have good nutrition, you bet that's going to affect the pain you feel. So for just focusing on the knee, you know, we're missing the person. We're not, it's not whole medicine and you're not treating the whole person. You're just treating the knee. So that's why I like talking about this biopsychosocial approach to pain and medicine. It's interesting, isn't it? And you may be thinking when you're talking about that, what, at what point do we forget about the person because with children we're all so careful not to scare them if a child falls over we go oh come on get up you're fine brush your hands you're fine well an ice cream everything's great and the pain goes away and we take it for granted but somewhere along the line I'm not sure what age it starts we start putting up x-rays with red dots on the back saying this is where your pain is this is when we start talking about things like degeneration and and unstable and crumbly and how why? Well, why? Why do we, when we see it with kids, we do it so well. I mean, as a parent myself, I know how it works now. I know how important it is to not look at the kid and go, oh, are you okay? Because that's them crying for hours. Where if you go, come on, get up, you're fine. And then check them over. Where did it get lost? Why did it get lost? Um, if I had the answer to that, I would ask <laughs> you for like millions of dollars. I mean, I can give you my, I mean, 
my honest opinion is that pain medicine is actually about money. And it's taken me a long time to realize that. It was a really sad day when I realized that. A lot of pain medicine, in my very humble opinion, is about money. So um, I think that if we were actually treating pain from a biopsychosocial perspective, a lot of people would stand to lose billions of dollars. And it's not a coincidence that people who speak up against big pharma get death threats and um, a lot of other things happen. So, yeah, I mean, um, medicine has become a lot about big pharma and, um, yeah, procedures. And yeah, if you're not properly scared, are you going to go take, I mean, what I've, what I've thought about for a really long time is if you, if you stop thinking about pain as a purely biomedical problem, are you going to also stop treating it from a purely biomedical perspective? By that, I mean, if you start thinking about your pain as a biopsychosocial problem, well, shit, you might start to stop, you might stop buying like loads of pain medications. You might stop going back for surgeries. And I don't mean to say that, you know, this is like malicious or that they're, you know, I happen to have strong opinions about big pharma, but, you know, but most people who go into treating pain are here for the right reasons and, you know, want to help people get well. But the way pain is also talked about in medical schools scares me. It's talked about as a biomedical phenomenon that requires biomedical interventions. So um, I think it's, you know, a lack of pain education. I think it's a lack of um, uh, multidisciplinary pain education rather than just having, you know, um, MDs talking about pain. We, we want all the disciplines in the room talking about pain together. I think we, we stand to learn a lot from each other, actually, and that's why I love collaborations like this. Mm-hmm. That's great. I think sometimes it's true what you say. That's a big money-making business, but I, I get really depressed if I think that's the main reason. If I had a Venn diagram, if I made that big, it's just like, oh, it's like reading too much Richard Dawkins or something. It just gets all very depressing. But I, I kind Richard of think, Dawkins. I know, but it can get very depressing. It's like, we're just here sure. as vessels carrying our genes around and that's it. There's no altruism and we're all just trying to defend our own genes. It's all a bit sad. You know? No, you're right. I'm, but, but. I think sometimes it's because once the, our patient or our client or our person in front of us becomes an adult, the dynamic changes to the extent that it's almost like we, we're not a teacher anymore. We're not an educator as we are with children. Suddenly we become a fixer and almost our, our, our honor and our usefulness is, is suddenly where we need to fix you. So we need to find a problem. We need to diagnose. I think that's what happens with adults. The dynamic changes. If we treated adults as just the big children they really are, especially when it comes to pain, because all of those emotions are exactly the same. The fears are suddenly, it's almost childlike because you can't see the future. You can't see past tomorrow and you fear that you're going to die tomorrow. And you look at things and believe, oh my God, my finger hurts. I've got cancer. Everything goes out the window as being an adult with logic. It all becomes very emotional. So I think that's part of the problem. It happens a lot in the massage industry is you're taught that you need to be a fixer as opposed to a facilitator or an educator. And we've talked to people like Mike Stewart who say that the main problem with healthcare is that no one's done an education qualification. We're all fixers. We're all kind of taught, do this with your hands, but we're not taught how to listen or use different questions to elicit responses and that. So I like to think that's a big part of the bubble. which just gets too depressing. Can I, no, still, can I still live with that? Is that okay? Yeah, no, that's totally fair. And to your question before, I don't know at what age we shift from, you know, you require soothing and distraction and like a de-escalation to like, we're going to hyper-escalate. And it's such a good and profound question in my mind. Like, don't you think all hospitals should have murals and stuffies and like, and like movies with Robin Williams playing? Like I do definitely. Mm -hmm. Let's do that. Let's do that for adults as well as kids. It's a brilliant suggestion. And I think it really would 
it would change medicine. So let, what, let's. What, what do all of us want when we're when we're ill? We just want someone to put us in bed, cuddle us, keep us warm, and bring us soup. Totally. Just say everything's exactly. going to be okay. It's not exactly. just guys, by the way. I can hear females in the audience going, "Yeah, particularly men when it's got men flu." It's human beings love being just going back to childhood. We just want to climb back into a womb somewhere and just sit there for a while. Where and feel safe. safe. Yeah. Exactly that word, safe. Exactly, and and we know that that feeling of safety is a profound changer of pain. Like back to that thing where if you're, if you feel like you're in danger and your body is in danger, pain is going to amplify. And if you feel safe and calm and soothed, your pain volume is going to be turned down. It's such a good point. I know you're a fan of phantom limb pain. You love it. Um, not that you've got any yourself, but I think I love, I love it as well in the sense that I think it really starts people thinking you can get some coins dropping when you just come out with some kind of the bombshell. Um, and also that's kind of the way that modern pain concepts started changing and when they were looking at that. So tell us a little bit about phantom limb pain for people who haven't actually had that coin drop yet. Yeah, there's a book that I happen to really love. It changed my entire life. Actually, that's not an exaggeration. It's called Pain, the Science of Suffering by Patrick Wall. He's one of the four founding fathers of pain science as we understand it today. Um, and he described this very interesting phenomenon, which I will also describe. Um, I am lucky to not have phantom limb pain. Phantom limb pain is when an accident survivor or trauma victim loses a limb, like an arm or a leg, and they continue to have terrible pain in the missing body part. And the interesting thing about pain, back to our prior conversation about biomedical versus biopsychosocial is we are taught from a young age that pain lives exclusively in the body right? Like back to that thing where if your knee hurts, it means that something's wrong with your knee and the pain lives in your knee. But science tells us that that isn't actually true. And some of that research does come from this phantom limb pain research. And if you can continue to have terrible pain in a body part that you no longer have, no limb should mean no pain if pain lives exclusively in the body. So the fact that you can have terrible pain in your leg without a leg tells us that pain has to be constructed elsewhere. And that place is the brain. And that's just such an important piece of information for anybody treating pain because it reminds us that when we're treating a patient with back pain or treating a patient with leg pain, that we can't exclusively, do we need to focus also on the back and the leg? Yes. Do we also need to focus on the brain? Absolutely. And that's why we're talking about these messages that we give people with pain, safety messages versus danger messages. And the reason we talk about context and environment and the reason we talk about coping strategies. So the phantom limb pain analogy for me is just such a powerful knock it out of the park. Because again, if you can have leg pain, but you have no leg, it, it tells us that pain doesn't exclusively live in the body and that it's constructed by the brain. And that's why I do what I do. And I have so much success, not because I'm a miracle worker, but because what I'm doing is addressing the whole person, not just their leg or their back or, you know, with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the treatment I provide as a pain psychologist, we go after the whole biopsychosocial picture. So thank you for bringing that up. No, definitely. I think it's, uh, it's in theory, I don't understand why medicine is so far behind with regards to pain because with that single have you ever thought about phantom limb pain that should end it all that should make everyone go oh, mic drop we need to change it rewrite the books but it hasn't for whatever the reasons are but yeah but it does lead on to my next question for you which i love asking um people who are experts in kind of pain management like yourself it's a great analogy well not analogy it's a great kind of fact and it makes people think but for a lot of people the message therefore in their brain as they listen to that would be Oh, yes, you're saying pain's all in my head. And that's a real danger, isn't it? Because once 
I mean, that's really a, a nasty thing for a patient to start picking up from the person who's supposed to be looking after them. You're kind of diminishing their, their, their pain and the meaning for it. How do you maybe one, it depends on the person in front of you, but how do you avoid or deal with not allowing that conclusion to arise from something like that, that pains all in the head? So uh, I am the last stop on the train when it comes to pain management. Nobody, and I literally mean nobody, wants to go to a pain psychologist to treat their pain. Like I hear all the things. No, but my pain is real. My pain is organic. My pain's from an injury. I don't, why would I go to a psychologist for pain? And it's, it's a totally reasonable, understandable question. Um, again, there's a lot of stigma around psychology for pain or talking about the brain. Um, and there are healthcare providers who do give messages to their patients like, oh, this is just anxiety or like, oh, you're just depressed or, you know, there's this messaging that happens. So I think what's really critical for all of us is to remember that the science of pain is not a casual thing. It's a critical thing. Every single person who walks into your office deserves to understand their pain. Nobody has ever told them that physical pain and emotional pain overlap and they do they cannot be separated when it comes to the pain you're experiencing again that thing with the limbic system the emotion center of your brain processes the sensations from your body 100% of the time before they become this experience we call pain that's just how that works but no one who walks into your office knows that so i am always at baseline before i do anything. I am always explaining the basics of pain neuroscience. So um, I can offer you the metaphor that I use with my patients. I use a metaphor of a pain dial and, and I'm just going to deliver it to you the way I deliver it to my patients. So if you imagine in your central nervous system that there's a pain dial, much like the volume knob on your car stereo that controls your pain and pain volume can be turned up by many factors, as most of us know, and it can be turned down by many factors as well. This is how it works specifically. There's three things in particular I like to explain to people that change pain volume. And there's many things, but three in particular. One is stress and anxiety changes pain volume. So I want to, from the outset, introduce this idea that triggers can be emotional. Of course they can. Uh, another thing that changes pain volume is mood. So negative emotions can change pain volume. And thing three is attention or cognitive processes or what you're focusing on. So when stress and anxiety are high, your body and your muscles are tense and tight and your thoughts are worried, your brain sends a message to your pain dial turning pain volume up. Whatever pain you had before when you're stressed or anxious, your pain is going to feel worse. That's part one. Thing two is mood. So when your mood is low, you're miserable and depressed, which happens to all of us when we have persistent pain, like you said. Your limbic system sends a message to that pain dial, turning pain volume up. Pain feels worse when mood and emotions are negative and low. And thing three is attention. So when you're home, you're in bed, you're on your couch, you're focusing on your pain, you have no life, your prefrontal cortex turns up pain volume. Pain feels worse when you're focusing on it. But the reason this is good news for people living with pain and the reason this is good news for us as healthcare providers is because the opposite is also true. So when stress and anxiety are low, your brain, your thoughts are calm, your body and your muscles are relaxed, your brain turns down pain volume. Same with mood. When emotions are positive, you're feeling joyful and happy. You're engaged in pleasurable activities. You're out with your friends your brain, your limbic system turns down pain volume, pain feels less bad. And 
when you are distracted, when you're so absorbed in some activity, you briefly forget about your pain that isn't magic. That's your brain's pain dial. So when you're engaged in activities, you're absorbed in things, you're doing things you love, your prefrontal cortex turns down pain volume. So pain feels less bad. And, you know, the, the way I get patients engaged in this metaphor and engaged in this story is I always ask people who walk in my door, hey, so you've had pain for seven years or 11 years or whatever, 10 months. Has anyone ever explained pain to you? And everyone says no. It's this magic question. And once people get indignant about that, like, and I say, oh man, like you've had pain for, no one's ever explained pain to you. That's ridiculous. And you get them properly like annoyed and they're like, yeah. And then you, you give them this metaphor. It's really, I feel like you can sink your teeth into that and you give them this biopsychosocial frame for their pain. And what you're also doing is you're giving them a biopsychosocial frame for their treatment also. So once they understand that that's how pain volume works, they're going to be much more invested in whatever you're offering them that's going to turn down their pain volume. So every session I have after that, I ask, what are we doing this week to turn down your pain, your pain dial? And I, when they come in, they report to me, Dr. Z, this week, these are the things that I did to turn down pain volume. This thing worked really well. This thing wasn't so great. Going out for ice cream with my friends was amazing. You know, there's all these things. So I find that that's just a, a really good frame for bridging this gap between emotional and physical. Definitely. Yeah, that's no, lovely. And it's such a, again, it's kind of just gold for people who are just tuning in thinking, okay, I'm interested in this. I get the whole biopsychosocial. That makes sense because they can draw on their own experiences. And then just the idea of a dial, especially, well, I'm thinking of it on behalf of soft tissue therapists because it's been shown in research that massage can dial down that can, can dial down the dial can dial down the dial. That sounds terrible. Yeah, you got it. No, great. But it, because if that's the best evidence we've got for massage, it's been shown um, with Christopher Moyer's got some great papers on this, that it can reduce anxiety and depression. And guess what? Anxiety and depression are drivers of pain. So correlational causation is kind of like, and so often we go, oh, forget about that. Let's just try getting these legs the same length because that's what's really causing the problem. We just kind of structuralize it, don't we? With the pain dial, it's really useful as well, I think, for therapists to have that analogy in their head because then they can really think, right, how am I going to help this patient today? They're sitting there with the notes. What can I do to help this patient? If they suddenly think, right, what can I do to help this patient turn down their dial? Okay, I can put some hands, I can do some treatment, but then they're going to start thinking, or oh, we could have a chat about that problem they had and whether they've managed to find a solution to that, or chat about the fact they're not sleeping more than three hours because their, their mother-in-law or their father-in-law is not looking after the baby or all these things. And this suddenly opens up what I've said before, where massage therapists need to become famous for having magic ears as opposed to magic hands, because the person's come to us, they've opened the door and said, please help me. And it's us who suddenly go, yeah, I can help you. What's wrong? Your knee, zoom in on the knee, but not because on the knee. Let's do this to the knee and just totally forget about the person and forget about dealing with what essentially is a child because they're in pain. They need mummy or daddy to help them. And that's a kind of like what, you know, the kind of help we have to give them. So people in here, I'm, I'm very much appreciating the feedback here because I always worry that you guys who give us your time to join us are on the same page and that we're kind of going over stuff, you know, but it's really nice to read things like, uh, where was it? We had Emma Morris. Thank you. Um, let's read this out for the podcast listeners. Amazing. I feel a huge penny drop in this topic. I've always believed in so many of these factors and it just confirms pain as a whole. Wow. I need the book. Thanks, Rachel. Oh, oh I think I've got a bit of dust in my eye. Beautiful. Mm, if we... <laughs> I just got chills. I got chills. Thank oh, you. I as well. I, um... 
I'm glad that's useful. I'm really glad it's useful. And what's interesting as you're talking, it makes me, you know, it's such an incomplete metaphor because there's so many things that change pain volume, but physical touch, like you said, there's abundant research on the role of physical touch in lowering pain volume and lowering the pain dial. It's exactly right. Like that, that was like one of the first things I learned in neuroscience when we talked about pain was the role of physical touch. Like I remember our professor said, what's the first thing you do when you bash your knee? Like, you know, you're sitting at the dining room table and you bash your knee. The first thing you do is rub it. The first thing you do is rub it. And there's a reason for that, right? Like we know that physical touch activates a fibers, like the touch fibers in your brain. And that, that actually gates or turns off the input from the body to the brain, the C fibers, like the pain. So it's just, it's such a profound and important reminder that there are all of these factors. Again, this biopsychosocial, there's physical touch lives in this biomedical domain. Like they're all so important. So if we're just focusing on one and we're missing the other two, we're missing two thirds of the pain problem. So we always want to be thinking about all the things. Something your book does, and, and I do encourage people to get the book or the Kindle edition or whatever you look on Amazon. It's not, it's really, it should be more expensive, let's face it, but it's very accessible. But um, like Becky said here, Becky Carroll has said, I'll put it out there in podcast listeners, it is making the complex simple. I think that's what people like yourself and people who are educating in pain manage to do. It is complex. We know pain's complex. It's not, I like the distinction between complex and complicated, but you can still put it in ways that the patient can understand. And that's the challenge, I think. Um, and you managed to do it really well. And the book does it really well. I love how you suddenly drop in kind of like cortex and, and, and bits of the brain and stuff. But then it's like, oh my God, she's getting scientific. But then it relates suddenly to, oh yeah, I get that. Oh yeah, okay, I understand that now. And then it goes, it's important not to forget that there is kind of like structural things here which are devoted to organizing emotions and stuff. But yeah, you managed to mix it up really nicely, which I think is, is really important. I think it's part of the reason I really enjoyed your book. Um, I'm so glad. That means a lot coming from an expert like you. It's just so oh, yeah. funny. You're, you are I an expert. Say that. No. I would. I would. I would. And you're an educator and you take complex things and you break them down too. That's what a good, that's, that is what a good educator does. So thank you for your work. Um, but you're reminding me, you know, that, you know, when I first sort of started studying pain, I was an undergrad and I was a neuroscience major and I was so interested in behavior and how that changed health and physical experiences. But I remember like full disclosure, I was worried about going into psychology um, because hard science is somehow given credibility, right? Like organic chemistry and neuroscience and physics. And the second you veer into psychology, there's like it's like a soft science. And for some people, it's even a pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. And maybe you're saying it's just all in your head and it's all psychological and there's like airy fairy. So I think for me, it's like very critical to always go back for like, I am a scientist and that's how I make sense of the world. And pain neuroscience is real. It's existed for decades. Like Melzack and Wall, that, that stuff has been around for like how many decades now? I mean, it's just, it's not new. It shouldn't be revolutionary, but like you said, it is. Like it's been around for forever. Mm. Um, I think it was sixty-five 60s, that the gate yeah. control. Sixty years, yeah. Yeah, the gate control theory of pain, and, and we've evolved. We know. I mean, it's like it's not like it's not true. We've evolved. We've elaborated upon it. We've it's evolved, but the the tenets of it remain true all these decades later. So I do think it's very important for us, and for me in particular as a psychologist, to retain. In order for me to retain credibility, I always go back to the hard science. Like, what does neuroscience say about pain? So, like, all the stuff I'm saying happens to be factually true. This is what all the papers show. Like, your thoughts affect your body. 
your emotions affect your pain. Like it shouldn't be revolutionary, but for some reason it manages to be. There's um, a comment here, and again, this is very massage related. It probably won't mean much to you, but Andy Glover here has probably been following some of the threads and things I've been stirring on Twitter and that. Perfect pain metaphor to be taught at level three. So level three is kind of the entry to, it closes the gap between kind of salad massage, which I'm not downplaying at all, but like a comfortable massage with kind of nice relaxing music and stuff to sports massage which is people who are actually maybe they want to be uplifted rather than just kind of dulled down they want to have a bit more ready for their race or something but it's come under a bit of a um what should we say disrespect really because some associate one association or one name has kind of suggested that one of they said we're not going to include level threes anymore because um we're just going to start with level fours because level four is where it's all happening with looking after people and and it's been a real shame but it does make me wonder not not even just at level three what about kids because as far as i know at school mine are only like five's the oldest but pain education isn't really even taught at school is it would that be a good place to start dropping some of these just there wouldn't even be bombshells to the kids we go oh yeah true little jimmy hasn't got a leg and yet he gets pain in his foot yeah it makes sense if we could take this on younger then maybe we wouldn't grow up popping pills and looking for people to fix us is that could that happen or is that just a bit of utopia? Let's do it. Can we do it? <laughs> Let's, I want to do it. I want to do it. I mean, like the problem is profound. Like just to drop a statistic for a second, 96% of medical schools in the United States and Canada have zero, zero dedicated compulsory pain education. 96% of medical. So like, Yes, let's have pain education in elementary school. Let's have pain education in high school. Let's have pain education be mandatory in medical school at, at the very least and in, in PT school and massage therapy school and, and in psychology programs like mine. I mean, the problem is really it's it's an iceberg. You know what I mean? Like, mm. like we're chipping away at an iceberg right now. It's like the depth of it is really, I don't want to depress you. I know you get depressed easily. Um, <laughs> and then it starts hurting. And then my back hurts. Weird, I don't yeah. know why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but yes, like l- let's put together pain education programs in elementary school. So Adrian Lowe is a wonderful physiotherapist and he actually did recently publish a couple of papers on a pain education program in an elementary school and found that the kids took less pain meds than the kids who didn't get pain education. They understood their pain better. There was less anxiety, less pain catastrophizing. We know it's effective. Why aren't we doing it? I'm not really sure. It's weird, isn't it? I think there's quite a few things we should be teaching kids to stop all the problems we've got when we're adults and start hating each other for the color of the skin and all that stuff. It doesn't happen in school enough, doesn't it? Everything. But we don't. It's weird. And if anything, we're making kids grow up too quickly. But anyway, we won't go down that road. Um, All true. It is true, isn't it? Um, Let me just check. I'm not missing out questions here. Let's have a look. Gina, let's bring up some stuff here. Gina, we see plenty of clients who are fixed from a biomechanical perspective, but still in pain. Always had long-term pain. We find Alexander's technique works well with these clients, which is all about the brain and body connection. So there is quite a few, I think the common modality between, I don't want to call them, can we call them, would you regard CBT as an alternative form of dealing with pain? Or does that kind of put it into a, is alternative generally regarded as non-medical and therefore it's kind of like, it's weird, isn't it? But it is alternative it in the sense of, yeah. I, yeah. I, I can't think of another word now. It's an alternative. It's, I mean, it's something it's, else to consider. Yeah. Uh, 
it's considered um, a non-pharmacological approach to pain, if that's one. one that uh, shouldn't be a bad thing, should it? That's like, that's a good I thing. I know, the non <laughs> suggests that it's, um, yeah. Weird. But, yeah, so, I mean, I forgive me, but I really don't know that much about CBT. Um, I send yeah. people off for it sometimes, or whether I send them to, like, clinics where I said, look, I think it yeah. would be really helpful for you to work with yeah. these people here, and then I keep in contact with them. But um, we've talked here about, for example, Alexander's technique, and but what's CBT? What are the main kind of take-homes from CBT? How? Why did you get into it? Why do you find it helps so many people? I can I, So I can very easily explain what it is. So I, I always want to unpack the black box, because it just sounds like this, like, what is this mythical thing that you're doing? And how, what does it have anything to do with pain whatsoever? Totally understandable. So cognitive behavioral therapy uh, means different things to different people. So when you go to read the research and the literature, and I think I've established pretty well that I'm a nerd, but if you go and read the literature and the research, you'll see that every paper defines it differently. There's no operational definition of cognitive behavioral therapy for pain. There is an operational definition of cognitive behavioral therapy, so I'm just going to say what that is. CBT teaches us that there's a connection between thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, and coping behaviors. So, if you imagine those four things and all the things are interconnected, like each thing is affecting all the things all the time, so specifically, people in pain are, are living in this chronic pain cycle. So the way I like to talk about it is your thoughts or how you think affects how you feel emotionally, affects how your body feels physically, affects how you cope or react your behaviors. And the example I want to give you is if you imagine a person with pain, I think this will resonate with everybody. We know that people with pain tend to think very distorted thoughts. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive distortions is a thing we go after and talk about and think about. So distorted thoughts we hear, I'm sure you guys could name 105. You can put them in the chat if you want. Cognitive distortions or untrue thoughts that I hear a lot are, I'm broken, I'll never get better. I've tried everything and nothing worked. Therefore, this isn't going to work. You know, my body hates me whatever, you know, you name it. I'm sure you guys have all heard these negative thoughts. So what we know about these negative thoughts is that they amplify, amplify pain volume. Just to remind everyone of this connection and why it's important to think about thoughts. So the CBT cycle, thoughts affect emotions. If you're thinking to yourself, I'm broken, I'll never get better. How does that make you feel emotionally? I'll ask you, Matt. If you're thinking to yourself, I'm broken, I'll never get better. How might you feel? down totally like mm. miserable depressed stressed anxious scared mm. you know um frustrated angry resentful like you can put a pile of them what do negative emotions do to pain oh yeah right they amplify it so thoughts emotions then your emotions affect your body the way i like to tell this to my patients is Emotions don't just live in your head. They also come out in your body. We all know that when you get really anxious, like before a presentation or a big exam or like whatever, what happens? Your heart starts racing. Your mouth gets dry. Your palms get sweaty. You know, you feel jumpy. You start fidgeting. Those are emotions manifesting physically. That's not like the word somatic isn't a bad word. It's just like this natural. You can't help it. You're a human being. Your head is connected to your body 100% of the time. So of course, emotions aren't just in your head. They're in your body too. We've got the thoughts. 
We've got the emotions. We've now got the physical sensations because when you're thinking I'm broken, I'll never get better. Your stress and anxiety are spiking. Your mood is crashing. What's happening physiologically? Well, your sympathetic nervous system is kicking in and your pain dial is being activated. So your pain is amplifying. So then we swing around to behaviors, thoughts, feelings, sensations, behaviors, what's happening. Well, now I'm laying on my couch for many weeks and many months and I'm not going to school or to work and I'm not seeing my friends and I'm not engaging in my normal social activities. I'm not going outside and running. I'm not playing sports. I'm I'm isolated. I'm inactive. Well, the cycle is a cycle for a reason. It spins back around. Now that you're isolated and homebound and couchbound and eating tubs of ice cream and feeling like crap, now what are you thinking? You're thinking pain has taken everything away from me. How does that make you feel? So you see, like it's very easy to see how the cycle keeps spinning around and people, we get stuck in these cycles all the time. The thing I love about CBT is that it's an evidence-based treatment, not just for pain, but also for anxiety and depression and trauma. And of course, as we all know, all of those things live hand in hand with chronic pain. So it sort of hits all the things for me. So what we do in CBT is we look at that cycle and everyone's is different. Every single person who comes into your office has a different, is stuck in a different version of that cycle and we kick it in. What do we need to do differently? How do we change your thoughts? How do we go after your emotional health? How do we go after the sensations? How do we go after your coping behaviors? So what I personally love about it is I find it's a very useful, applicable and changeable cycle for people with pain. It's easy to understand and it gives you so many options for things to target. So many options. You can go after coping behaviors and sleep and nutrition. You can go after cognitive, what you're thinking about, what you're focusing on, what you're paying attention to. I mean, there's like a million things. Does it, I mean, I mean, in your book, you break it down really nice. I want to talk about Inside Out. Remind me to talk about Inside Out because it's one of my favorite films as well. But and, And I think I've always loved that whole thing of little people living inside being controlling bits and bobs. But what I wanted to say first was it's not really regulated, is it? Just the same as any profession. You could probably go to see somebody who's offering CBT and you're going to have a bad experience because of the way they're using it. And as always, the negative things tend to hit social media and be talked about more because I think – I've definitely heard people who have been to CBT and I've known some people quite close to me who have been and they said, it just felt like I was being pushed into a corner. They were telling me that it was all about my relationship with my dad and I felt really good. And they were just kind of going on at me. And I've heard other people say, oh, yes, well, CBT is not for everybody. If you, if you feel that you're in a certain state of mind where you're going to get paranoid that some people are after you, then that's not the best form. But when I looked at your book, it becomes quite clear that it's not one model. It's something which can change depending on the person in front of you, which kind of went ding. That's exactly what all healthcare should be. So that makes sense, isn't it? It's not just, this is a way of dealing with these people. It's not working. Let's do something else. Talk to me a little bit more about that, how you might change depending on the person in front of you. Yeah, I, I have, there's a person who writes about pain a lot who I admire and he tried CBT for his chronic pain and he said they basically told him to stop thinking about his pain and they focused very much on his thought processes, like almost exclusively, it sounds like. And that is not what CBT is supposed to be. And I get so frustrated and I think it's sort of like, I'm sure, I'm sure. And, you know, the, the manual and massage therapy profession also like, the individual matters a lot. So there's really no way to control for it, right? It's like someone goes for a massage and they get a really horrible massage and it increases their pain. So I remember, this is a great 
analogy. Like I went to someone on analogy, a great story. I went to someone for a massage and he was, he pinched my skin so hard. And I said, I gave him feedback. I was like, you're really hurting me. Do you think you would stop pinching? And he was like, this is just how I work. And he didn't stop. So I ended it early. I've never done that with a massage in my life. He must have been um, very advanced. That was the problem. Maybe somebody was too yeah. good. It was too good for you. He needs to go to someone less specialized. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. I mean, it's the same thing with therapy. It's the same thing with pain psychology. It's the same thing with cognitive behavioral therapy. The provider matters just as much as the modality. The provider matters just as much as the modality. So CBT can be delivered well. It can be delivered not well. CBT can be delivered by someone who knows nothing about pain. It can be delivered by someone who knows a lot about pain. It can be with someone who's focusing only on your cognitions, which is like not how that's supposed to go, especially if you, as the recipient, says, I'm not into this. I don't like this focus on my cognitions. You switch gears. You, you look at something else. You, you, know, you talk about coping behaviors or you put together a pacing plan for increasing desired and valued activities or you look at sleep hygiene or I mean, there's like so many things you can focus on. Um, so the individual always matters. It's really important for us to always focus on the needs of the person in front of us and to listen to feedback. If so if, you know, if your patient says, I hate being pinched or, you know, this cognitive stuff isn't resonating with me, you change gears, right? That's just like how that goes. Yeah. You think, but sadly, yeah. I mean, it's the trainers really, probably, probably it's the trainer who's probably that person, whether it's a massage therapist or somebody who's been taught CBT has been told persevere with this because this is what's going to work. And again, it's you fixing them. Don't start listening to the person in front of you because that will break the train of thought. And it's it's a shame. So, yeah, very a lot. Um, yeah. Inside out. I just when I when I heard you talking about it with um, with Z dog, Z dog, Z dog, Z Zubindamania. <laughs> yeah. Because um, uh, I love that movie as well. I, I'm so excited when my littlest says, you know, what, you choose the movie, daddy. And I'm like, great. Bring it on inside out. Because I've always loved it. It was the. I thought it was the Beano, but apparently it's called the Bees or something. But they had the numb skulls. You're probably not old enough to remember this. But basically it was – and I loved it. And I used to draw myself with my own little numb skulls. They were basically little things. There was one that – there was a couple that lived in operated the mouth. And they'd send messages to the stomach. Something coming down. You better get back to work or something. And then there was others in your hands and feet. And I just loved this idea. And I'm talking about probably when I was like eight or nine. I was obsessed with this idea there's little people working to keep a bigger organism happy. Um, so when I saw this Inside Out, which people, if you haven't seen it, then I recommend it for adults, especially if you've got kids, because it's one of those ones you can sit down and go, this is amazing. We're all having a great time together. But it kind of it. I think it's quite a healthy thing to watch because it does. It divides emotions up inside to kind of like um, you've got joy, haven't you, and anger. Is it something which I mean, did you enjoy it and talk about it because you think it's quite a useful way of looking at the human body? And or did you just like it because of the because it's fun? <laughs> the movie Inside Out. I liked the movie Inside Out a lot because it was just a reminder. First of all, it puts places value on emotional health, which I think mm. is like undervalued. Also, it's targeting kids, which I think, like you said before, can you imagine if all of this education existed in you know elementary school and preschool and we taught kids to value their emotions and learn how to talk about them and learn yeah. the impact that emotions have on the body? Um, but I also really liked the physical manifestation of emotions. So, you know, in Inside Out, if you think about anger was my favorite personally, mm -hmm. like he's this squat little red guy and his head's always like bursting into flames, you know? And I think what I like about that is, again, it's this like reminder that it, your emotions aren't just in your head. They also manifest physically and or somatically. And I love the way 
that they depicted anger, right? Like, I think we've all had this experience when you feel anger. I try and always ask my patients where in their body they experience and feel their emotions and different emotions are experienced in different parts of the body. So like for anger, for example, people will say they feel tight in their chest and they feel like tingling in their hands or their fists and their face will get red and their jaw will clench. And I just, I always want to bring it back. Like, right. Of course your emotions are implicit in the pain that you feel, even the way you just expressed your anger to me and where you feel it in your body. So like if you're experiencing chronic headaches and you're telling me that when you get angry, your jaw gets tight and you're clenching and you're grinding your teeth, that tells me that I, I bet a crap load of money that this, like anything that we can do to help you manage your anger is going to help you with your headaches. And, and we don't talk about pain that way. We don't talk about headaches that way. Like, you know, when you go to your physician for headache management, do they ask you about your anger levels and whether you're clenching your jaw at night? Like that just doesn't happen. So I really liked that it was a really concrete and physical way of like depicting. And I think humans are very visual, of course. And I think we learn from, from, you know, visual reminders. And I really liked the way they did that. Yeah, definitely. I th- I'd recommend people who are working with other people, which is pretty much everyone should have a look. Cause it just shows where emotions, how, Ultimately, everyone's got these emotions and sometimes they shout loud. The sadness I thought was so good as well. And how it's kind of sadness is forked that kind of everything starts going wrong. And then they all start working together to try and help Joy in who's gone disappearing to kind of like long term memory or something. It's a brilliant yeah. show, people. I would definitely have a look at it. Really, really nice show. Listen, I'm aware it's 10.03 um, and it feels like I've only had 10 minutes to talk to you, which is a shame, but um, you've probably got other things which are more important. So I really appreciate giving us time. I just want to quit. Okay. Can I quickly go to a couple of questions in here? You got to get yes, away. Yes, you can. I, I do. No, I don't. And I just want to quickly say um, for folks who are interested in talking more about this, first of all, um, I'm, I'm happy to collaborate with anyone. I think cross-disciplinary collaborations are critically important. Um, Matt already mentioned the books on Amazon. I'm also on Twitter. I've not been on social media until the pandemic, but I really, I found a lot of colleagues that way, oddly enough. And I know you were talking about this earlier too, Matt, just, so I'm at Dr. Zavnis on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram for some reason. Um, that's at the real docs off. I'm not really good at Instagram yet, um, but I'm working on it. Um, and I also have a dorky website and has a ton of pain resources. So if people are wanting to learn more about pain, it's just softness.com. It's my last name, Z-O-F-F-N-E-S-S. It's a beautiful com. website, by the way. It's absolutely Thank beautiful. you. I need to update it, I feel like. But um, anyway, there's like a resources page and there's like books and podcasts and um, links to websites nice. and art, journal articles and like all sorts of dorky stuff. So if you guys are interested in pain, um, there's a resource page on there. It's like free. You can give stuff to your patients for free access, low cost, affordable, accessible care. Okay. That's what I wanted to say. Brilliant. No, definitely. And if you're, if you listen to podcast, I'm just going to put up, if you listen to podcast, you can't see the screenshots I'm putting up, but it really, I mean, it's like, even to the, the background, it's just calming looking at it. And so simple. It's like, we're going to keep things simple. It's a great website. I, hope it does, I don't know if it was you or the pay someone to do it, but it was really, really, really nice as soon as you go in there. And there is details on there, loads of information. What is CBT? There's also talks of the, the books as well with links to them. And what was also exciting was I noticed as I was looking through it, um, there it is, um, that there was talk of workshops coming up. Is that something coming soon? Email if interested. 
Yeah. So I started during COVID, I sort of freaked out like everybody else. And I was like, I'm cut off from my community and I'm, I can't go to conferences and I can't meet people. And I'm like hyper social, if you can't tell. And I love collaborations and I love conversations. And I was like, I'm not going to have any. So I created um, a six part pain workshop. It's nine hours, six it's six part, nine hours. I, that, that was live. I think it will be shorter, but, um, I'm re-recording it and I'm going to be putting it up on the website shortly. So if people want to, it's going to be like a pain science and psychology, everything you ever wanted to know. So I'm going to be putting that up short, shortly. I haven't done it yet. I'm, I intended to do more live workshops, but then I started all these other teaching gigs and ran out of time. Okay. So yeah, so if you're listening to the podcast, it's Zoffness, which is dot com, and you'll find all information on there uh, with regards to the books, with regards to up and coming workshops and so on. Right. Five minutes, people I've seen. Um, Anne-Marie, you've got a big question there, which oh, we can't answer there four minutes, but I will put it to um, Rachel. Uh, Anne-Marie says, Rachel, I'd love to hear your view on the criticism of um, biopsychosocial as a reductionist model. The criticism doesn't sit well with me as I do not feel that we have uh, embraced BPF, BPS as Eagle intended. In my view, that criticism maybe should be directed to the therapist to understand the model as three separate factors instead of a complex interplay. So, yeah, you, you must come across. I mean, again, it's social media. People are criticizing anything. It's kind of almost a career. But what do you say to people who do criticize BPS? And there are a few of them. Um. Right. I have some strong opinions about that. I think it's absurd. Um, I do not think it's a perfect model. I would never say that. Um, however, what we still have in pain medicine is a biomedical model. Why are we complaining about expanding that to a biopsychosocial model? Let's first encourage medicine to incorporate a biopsychosocial perspective of health and pain. Like, let's not, let's not move medicine away from that. Please, let's all encourage that conversation. Like, I think anybody who is interested in pain doesn't know half the things we talked about today. And all we're doing is talking about this thing. By the way, it's a fact that pain is biopsychosocial. This is not an opinion. Pain is not biomedical. It, it may be additional things, but I bet if we talked about those additional things, they would probably fit somewhere in the biomedical domain or the psychological or the sociological or the... I think it's a very wide and huge and all-encompassing way of talking about health. Um, and I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I wish that people would um, actually advocate for a biopsychosocial approach to pain medicine rather than tearing it down because we have a biomedical approach. That's what's being taught in medical school. That's what our patients are being told. They're pursuing pills and procedures preliminarily and predominantly and often exclusively and that needs to change so i hope that we can shift the conversation there you go so you're kind of sitting on the fence with them then you're not quite sure what to say to them i can see you're not yeah you're not committing to that are you no i'm joking yeah very clear message then to people <laughs> listen look, um, i, I no, should have warned you, you. <laughs> yeah that's fine i should have warned you at the beginning i'm a new, i'm a new yorker and i have strong opinions and i state them strongly so you're yeah. like Riley, actually, in Inside Out, aren't you? Because she moved to San Francisco, not from New York, but she was new in San Francisco. Because you're in San Francisco now, aren't you? Or just near it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, there's, right maybe that's why you were so keen on the film. Um, yeah. People are like the pendulum swung too far the other way. That annoys me as well. I think the pendulum is still pretty much firmly stuck to the kind of left-hand side. It really hasn't moved hardly at all towards the other side. Why but are I we say, complaining about progress? Like exactly, progress. Yeah. Why are we, what are we whining about? Progress. There are shortfalls. People do take it too far too soon and start saying things which could make the patient think or the person think that it's all in their head. And it is an education. You can't just jump straight into go, right. 
but but that's all part of the fun really it should be fun it's evolving isn't it okay right look people i really need to let um, rachel go so i'm just gonna pretend to look through the questions as if i'm reading them and no i'm actually looking at them um what i will try and persuade rachel to do in her own time is maybe come back and have a look look through these when you get a chance and, and answer some of them anyway but it is 10 10 Ah, so I need to let Rachel go. Rachel, thank you so much. It's gone fast. I can honestly say it's gone faster than any guest I've ever had, actually. So that must be having fun. Time flies. I think we're yeah. I think we're both really interested in the subject matter, and and I appreciate you guys, everybody coming. I know it's later than regularly scheduled, so nice to meet everybody virtually. Yeah, that's no, great. Now, thank you, people, for turning up, especially this crazy hour in the UK of past nine o'clock. Um, but yeah, it was great. So um, yeah, Rachel, thank you very much. What I'm going to do, actually, no, I'm not going to put you down to the lobby game because we haven't got time. I'm just going to say that next week, people, uh, just in case you don't know, we've got David Ballins. That'll be back to the eight o'clock time with a chance to ask all about your insurance questions. That's happening now. It was cancelled a few weeks ago, but that's actually going to happen there. There you go. There's a script. Oh no, he's gone. There we go. There's a screenshot full. Bom, bom, bom. That'll be next week at eight. Um, and as always, keep this conversation going in here. We'll make sure links go in there. This can now be the pain management kind of column here. So we'll add to it. If you've got questions or you've got feedback, then keep using the comments. Even though the show ends, the show hasn't ended. It goes on every day that we care for people. Um, I don't know if that made sense or not. But anyway, Rachel, thank you so much for your help. Um, I thank might you so much for having have come me back on. In a month or something, but yeah, and I want to say special thank you to Becky Carroll for for believing in oh, my work and, and singing recommending yeah. recommending that I come on. I really appreciate that. There you go, there you go, Becky. Thanks, shout guys. out from this from doctor's off herself. Ha, right, ha, ha. thanks everybody. But um, don't you go away. I'm going to say thanks to you. I'm just going to say goodbye to everyone now and sign out. Thanks, people. Um, we'll see you back at the normal time, eight o'clock. Um, and thanks to Dr. Rachel Zoffn, as it says on the name here. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about it.